She's a counselor, has a master's in marriage and family therapy, and specializes in self-care. She's American Indian, and she was born and raised in a traditional family. When she was younger, she battled against depression, and her journey is a very inspiring one because now she helps other people to find their true, authentic self. Firecrackers, please welcome Monique. Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. Oh, Monique, it's such a pleasure to have you on my show today. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I wanted to ask you first and foremost, where are you located right now? Um, I'm in the United States. So yeah, like the West Coast of the US. When you sent me your email, you told me that you are a Punjabi Sikh. So you're an, mm-hmm. you're an Indian American. Mm-hmm. And when did you move to the States or were you born in the States? I was born in the States. Yeah. So I was born in the States, but a, a lot of the, a lot of um, Indian Americans in the U.S. Uh, were raised kind of very insulated. So we're raised around our culture in a lot of respects. And for many of us, most of us, we're actually not exposed to a whole lot of people outside of our culture until maybe we go off to college or go off to work and then kind of branch out with experiencing the world in a different way. But they definitely, it's a very tight knit community. So Um, so a lot of the traditions are the same. A lot of the mindset that we're raised with is very similar to my family in India. Um, so. That's really interesting because I mean, Mm -hmm. I've, I meet a lot of people from the States and they usually, if they're born in the States, they're usually permeated by other cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, why is it that you think that Indian culture is so, has remained so like in close in the sense that they want to like keep the traditions is it because of that or what do you what do you think it is I think it's that they want to keep the values um and I always um that's a good question I think it's that they want to keep the values and I think just growing up you know you don't question the environment that you're raised in and so it's not until you kind of start to think for yourself um and so I think you know for me growing up I would always go to we called we called it Gurdwara which is basically a temple We would go every Sunday as a family. And so you just tend to um, socialize with the people in that community. And I went to school and, you know, was definitely exposed to different kids at school. But the culture emphasizes family so much um, that I didn't really... um, It it emphasizes the family, it emphasizes the culture and the community so much that as a kid, you don't really venture out. You don't really question it. You just tend to hang out with other children from your culture and... Part of it as a kid, too, is that you, you know, it's really your parents who choose who you're going to invest your time into, um, at least in Indian culture. That's kind of the case. So um, that was the case for me. It wasn't until really after high school that I got to choose who I wanted to invest my time into um, because there wasn't as much control um, there. So, yeah. Control is an interesting word. Yeah. So you feel that there's like a lot of control on kids from your culture? I think so. I mean, it's it's a it's a very conservative culture, and especially for women. I mean, the culture pushes obedience. You know, you're taught. I think all women, Indian women. I mean, that's a very general statement to make. Most Indian women 
are taught to be obedient, to obey their elders. It's disrespectful to, to say anything in disagreement or to be disagreeable. And that's certainly how I was raised. Part of it is that part of the culture. Part of it is my nature too. I, tend, I tended as a kid to be an obedient kid. And so I just um, went along with things. And in a lot of ways, yeah, the culture does uh, keep a, a, a tight control over how they raise their kids. Um, and I think in a way they shelter their kids away from what's happening in the outside world so as not to have their kids either be influenced in a positive or negative way. I mean, their intention is not to have their kids be influenced in a negative way by all of the dangers that exist outside in the world. But the flip side of that coin is there's a lot of positive influences outside of the culture that you're also not exposed to. And so um, because of that too, and I, th I think you're just you're not given a whole, at least I wasn't in the culture, given a whole lot of freedom to say no. I mean, I didn't learn that I could say no to things until I was an adult. That was not something I had a right to do as a kid. I was kind of labeled as being argumentative or in disagreement. And I got into trouble like anytime I disagreed with something. And so in order to like preserve my own mental health, I just learned to like be agreeable until I got older. And started developing my own opinions about things <laughs> <laughs> yeah so people yeah. pleasing is the kind of thing that yeah people pleasing yeah absolutely especially as women there's a double standard in the culture I mean boys can do whatever they want but girls are very much um expected to expected to be obedient and to comply and not question authority not question what you're told just do what you're told basically yeah yeah well that sounds not a lot of fun but I guess there's a lot of cultures like that around the world. I mean, I, I think Latin American culture is still like that at some level, like in some maybe social circles, but it's a lot mm -hmm. more open-minded now than it was maybe 20, 30, 30 years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned temple. So there's also that religious factor, right? Mm -hmm. How does yeah. that play? How was the role of the religion in your upbringing? What mm -hmm. was it? You know, for me, I always had, I always felt that there was a conflict between what the religion was teaching me and what I saw in the culture. Um, I always felt that there was a lot of hypocrisy there. And even to this day, I kind of had it, I had seeds of that, I, of that thinking were in me at a younger age, at eight, nine years old, 10 years old. But as an adult, it's really clear that that's the case. I mean, as a religion, like I was raised in Sikhism. The religion teaches humility to be humble, to embrace all races. You know, we at the temp at the Gurdwaras, the temples that we would go to, they have free food that they make for the community that goes there, but they'll, also, they'll serve anybody. So if anybody who's homeless goes to the temple to get food, they'll serve them happily. And that's kind of the point is to give food to the people. And so um, a lot of the, the spiritual teachings, I very much resonated with, um, you know, to be embracing of everyone, to live according to your true nature, to be humble, all that. The culture is very different. Indian culture, from my experience, as my, I mean, this is just my own personal opinion, is very different from how the spiritual texts are. Um, I find in Indian culture, there's a lot of emphasis on status and on um, what you do as a career, what kind of family you marry into, how you live your lifestyle, like superficial things that I think is maybe West, more westernized thinking, like what kind of 
house you're living in? What kind of car are you driving? Are you living a life that like kind of keeping up with the Joneses mentality, which I don't think is true to the ancient culture of India, but I think it's just Westernized influence. You know, yeah, just there, there's a lot I could go into with that. But I just, I always found that there was a, a dichotomy there between how, how what, what I learned from the spiritual text and what I saw in my culture. There's a lot of good things too. Like the community is very close knit, very family oriented. I'm really close to my family and it's, that's because of how I was raised and how the culture is. Um, you know, your family's like always there for you, which is a beautiful thing. Um, but you know, there's, there's good and bad to everything. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about how, you know, the religion, uh, the ancient texts say one thing and then the uh, culture like of what, or what is expected of women is completely different. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about how westernized Indian culture is, is as well. So there's like a mix of the old and the new that is, mm-hmm. I find it really fascinating. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've watched Indian Matchmaker on Netflix. it's funny I was actually I had uh I was picnicking with a friend a few days ago and she mentioned it to me I've heard about it I haven't watched it yet I do have Netflix so I plan to watch it um I have kind of an idea of what it's about I also have like family members who have you know they found their spouses through Indian matrimonial website so I'm also very familiar with that world um but anyways I haven't seen it but I'm curious what your thoughts are about I was obsessed from the first episode because it's very interesting how um, Indian culture still man- maintains that this really old tradition, you know, of, of mm-hmm. matchmaking. But now, what I see, what I saw uh, on on the specific show was that the people who are being matched have a lot more say than they did before. Before, mm, would, they would get matched, and that's it. Like you have no say. You're gonna marry yeah. him, or you're gonna marry her, and that's it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but I, I was curious about if i mean you just mentioned that you know many people who have used the service so it is very common in the culture to use magic oh it's very common yeah i don't know if it's i haven't seen the show so i don't know like there's a few the what i know about are a few like indian matrimonial websites that are commonly used in the community in amongst the indian american community in the us i think probably they're commonly used in india too i would imagine or maybe like indians in the uk commonly use these sites as well um, but it's pretty standard. Like, I feel like amongst um, amongst the Indian community that I know that is my age, I'm in my 30s. So probably, <laughs> I was going to say, like, the majority, maybe even 100% of them ended up finding their spouse. If they married another Indian spouse from the same religious background, they used an Indian matrimonial website that lists out. I don't, I don't know what stuff they emphasize in the show, but it's basically, like, a lot of times it's parents who are on the websites um, who are connecting, like, for example, say if I was on the, on the website, I would be, it'd be a picture of me with information about me, but it would be my parents who would actually be communicating with the person, the gentleman that they were interested in. Wow. And they would speak with his parents through the website. And if the parents felt like there was a good match there, then the kids would meet. Um, so it's kind of a... Um, what would you call like a modified version of an arranged marriage, a more uh, definitely more freedom there because the kids could choose, you know, whether I think in most cases, maybe not in all, but they could choose whether they're interested in each other or not. I've seen a lot of variations. Like I, I know some people who met through that website were engaged a month or two later, married a few months after that. So that's like pretty close to an arranged marriage. Not exactly 
you know, not exactly to the traditionally arranged marriage, but still pretty closer to that than not. And then I also know people who met through those websites and dated for a few years and then decided to get married, which that's a lot, that's a much more kind of um, Americanized use of the, of those websites. Um, but it is still very common, both definitely in Indian American culture that parents will meet and see if it's a good fit. And then the children will meet. And if the children feel like they get along, I call them children because that's what they call even in Europe. <laughs> you know, your mother will still call you a child. So um, um, if they get along, you know, depending on how traditional the family is, they'll want them either married right away or they'll want them to date for a bit and see if it, if it's a good fit. And that's a more Americanized, more open-minded approach, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it depends on the family with that. But um, an interesting thing I do find with those websites is they, they, there's silly things on there that they ask, like, you know, what's your skin tone? Are you fair? Are you medium? Are you dark? Um, you know, your just physical features are interesting how they, and that's common in Indian culture. Like the darker you are, um, the less, less, yeah, less desirable you are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I gathered. I mean, the show is an actual matchmaker. So what she did was go to the, to the person who wanted to get matched. And of course there's the family and then they kind of like had this list of requirements and then she would bring like, they're like CVs of people, <laughs> like mm-hmm. of partners. Yeah. 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 I remember how they call them anyway. And then they could choose who they wanted to like go out on a date with basically. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. The, the parents were very actively involved, involved. in the process. Absolutely. Because yeah. what they said was, you know, you don't marry. It's not just the two people who are getting married. It's like it's the whole family's the families. Right. Yeah. No, it's so, true. In every situation, I would say even in my situation and I have a much more, non-traditional background the parents are always very involved it's just part of the culture it's so it's it's as much part of the culture as like my skin tone is like it's just built in the idea of parents not being involved would be um would be hard for a parent to understand honestly it's just so ingrained in the culture yeah and and the whole skin tone is also featured in the show at some point for example, the matchmaker says, oh, and she, she's beautiful and she has, she's fair. And mm-hmm. I thought, thinking, like, why is that like a thing? Uh, right. No, it's crazy. It, it's, you know, I'm, uh, my skin tone is not a desirable skin tone for the culture. Like when they say fair, they mean like olive skinned, like almost like you could pass probably for Caucasian, not Caucasian, maybe like um, Middle Eastern, uh-huh. like just a very, even like, for example, like my mother has a lighter skin tone even than you do. Oh. Um, yeah, like really fair. My mom's skin was like, my mom tells me when she was, uh, when she was in her twenties, like she always had guys going after her because she had like fair skin and beautiful. And even if you look at, um, Bollywood, which is like the Indian cinema now recently in the past, like five or so, maybe five or 10 years, have there been darker skinned women that they're making as, leading roles but before that it was like very fair-skinned women like I don't know is that the right tone I'm using olive colored skin and dark hair like just more lighter skin and I know for me it um it took me a long time it probably wasn't until my late 20s that I started embracing my skin tone and um I love my mother but she's always got something to say about how dark I am and um it's just because that's just how the culture is that's how women are raised. I like to go hiking and camping and go for walks outside. I'm not going to hide away from the sun because, 
it's like, what kind of quality of life is that? So it just happened to be darker. I still hear it to this day, but I can embrace it with like, um, I can take it with a grain of salt because I've just accepted that that's how the culture is. And I've embraced myself now, so it's easier to deal with, but it's definitely, even to this day, yeah, a big deal in the culture. Yeah. That's very interesting. And is it, I don't know, because the first thing I thought was, I see this like light skinned or like lighter skinned women in India. Maybe it's because they have like more English background Mm-hmm. Is it because of that? Yeah. You know, I've read um I've I've read on the history of it and it's it's a few things. I think, you know, people who have darker skin in the culture are associated with being like workers, like working out, tending to the farms, being outside in the outdoors doing those kind of jobs, which tend to be um jobs that are not as quote unquote respectable as someone who is doing a job indoors, like an office job or a job where you're educated, quote unquote again. And so they tend to be lighter. And so there was an association with that, which I think is one thing. Another thing I think is like the westernized influence um, and um, almost like a, uh, you know, the, India and Britain don't, in, in, don't have like, in India and like the British don't have the, the most peaceful uh, history together, right? So there's like right. the British invaded India quite mm-hmm. a lot. But there's like a, a weird thing where... Um, a lot of parts of British culture were adopted into Indian culture just by the nature that there was like close uh, living uh, with, with the British. And so I think like colored skin might be a byproduct of colonialism that happened in India during those times too. It's probably a whole bunch of things, but um, those are two things that I think definitely played a role. Yeah. I think the same thing happens in Latin America. And I was having this conversation with uh, another Latinx woman, uh, woman, um, and mm-hmm. it's that the lighter this, your skin is and the blonde, like the more, more Caucasian or European you look, mm-hmm. the more desirable you are as well here. And so we're, it's the same thing, yeah. Yeah, because here we have, we're mixed. We have uh, African heritage. We have mm-hmm. indigenous heritage. We also have mm-hmm. European heritage. And we're mm-hmm. very, very mixed. But the lighter you are... Yeah normally the more desirable you are as well. Like the yeah. blue-eyed white girls here, right. which there are, mm-hmm. are usually, you know, looked as being the most beautiful. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Even in your culture, that's the case. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I am curious what the history is behind that too. I feel like there's probably a lot of similarities between the influence there in Indian culture and also in your culture, yeah. You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. You mentioned that your partner is actually Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, yeah. you are you chose somebody completely different from what your culture yeah, is. But right. I want to hear about that story and how, how did that happen? Oh, that's a story. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, part of it is, um, it's hard for me to put into words cause I don't, I don't talk about it so much. It's not, it's not something anyway. So let me, let me try my best to put it into words. Part of it is my nature that as I grew older, um, there's a lot of things in the culture that drove me to um, pretty severe mental health issues. Like I had pretty severe depression. I was suicidal at one point in my life. All of that because I was having a very hard time staying within the narrow constraints of 
of the culture and what I was taught. Like I can only live in these constraints. And I see this whole world outside of me that has no constraints or far less. And I just couldn't find it livable to stay in those constraints. And so um, in a lot of ways, when I overcame my battle with depression and overcame my suicidality, I kind of decided I was just going to live my life for me. I can no longer live my life to people please and to um, keep the culture proud of me, keep my family proud of me. And so um, I was about 23 when I kind of started a new chapter in my life. And I decided I'm only going to do what feels right to me every step of the way. And um, very much, uh, it's a, it, I, I, don't, I don't even call it a new chapter. Honestly, I call it a new life. Like I feel like I am living a second life, uh, more true to who I am. And the first 23 years of my life was like a whole different life. I was a whole different person. Um, and so it was around that time, actually, that I met my husband. I had always taken, I'd always been um, very, uh, it, it, I always enjoyed dance. Like that was something I did in my culture. I did um, Indian dancing with my, my temple. We had like an Indian dance team. And so I was a part of that growing up. In college, I took some salsa classes that I fell in love with. And so at that time, I had started taking salsa classes again, like kind of along this journey, that journey of I'm going to do what feels right and just live according to my joy. And so I did that. And my husband happened to be at one of those classes. So that's how we met. And I just, I, I didn't really think about, no, I did think about how my family would um, respond to that. I just followed what felt right. And if it felt right, I knew I was going to follow it. And I felt that was the only way to live my life and to make my life feel worth living. So I followed it every step of the way. And then a year into it, um, you know, I let him know that I come from a traditional family. This is going to be a huge battle. Me letting my parents know that I am dating you. At the time, my parents were trying to arrange my marriage. And so um, that was happening. And, um, wow. so I knew it was going to be a battle. And I remember telling my husband, like, I, if this is worth it to you, be prepared for that. If it's not worth it to you, then we should just part ways. And I knew it was worth it to me. I was willing to go through, uh, the darkness that that was going to entail and come out the, I knew there was a light on the other end. Cause I was doing what was right for me. Thankfully he, uh, you know, he uh, was more than willing to, to go the path. And so we did, um, I waited about a year before I introduced him to my parents. But honestly, my family didn't even acknowledge him as a person in my life until three years after that, when we got uh, married, is when my parents finally acknowledged him. So he met my parents a year into our relationship. My parents were still trying to arrange my marriage for the rest, for the next two to three years, two or three years, for the next three years, because we uh, were engaged and married about three years later. So mm-hmm. um, it was a battle. It was hard. It was definitely took a toll on me. He was very supportive. I think I took the brunt of the anger that my family was feeling. Um, that's another thing with Indian culture is they will never air their dirty laundry. So they would never like pointing at him or raise their voice at him but there's no but behind closed doors within their own families there's a hot mess going on (laughs) usually and so I was dealing with the hot mess for sure Um, but he was supporting me uh, which was helpful and the funny thing is that after we got married we got married um, I think five years after I had introduced him to my parents Um, and it was like a night and day switch like all of a sudden 
my parents were incredibly warm and welcoming to him. My siblings all of a sudden became very warm and welcoming to him after we were married. So it was like after this thing was set in stone. And I, I don't really know. I still don't even understand really the switch. It's some part of the culture that I think I'm not even privy to because I don't think this way. Um, but it was just an immediate embrace of him. But it was five years of um, battle and enduring. Um, and it, I was very much living two lives at that time. I was living my life, which I love very much. Like every moment I was spending with my, with my then partner, now husband, we were living a very joyful life. And I remember I was having a hard, you know, when I was with my family, I couldn't bring that joy into that environment because they couldn't embrace it and they couldn't create space for it. And if I was too joyful, I would have gotten attacked. And so I had to keep that part of my life separate. And then when I was with my, my family and my loved ones, um, in order to just keep the peace with the family and also in order to protect my space and to keep my space uh, to make sure I'm not exposing myself unnecessarily um, to emotional attacks or verbal attacks, I just had to play the game, you know, play the, play the, the daughter that they needed me to be. Um, and then I would go back into my life and live my life that I love and enjoyed and I couldn't share it with them at the time. So I was very much living two different lives uh, at that time. Wow. There's just so much to unpack here. I mean, I, I'm so happy that you found the strength and also somebody to like support you through all that process. Because at the beginning when you started telling your story and, and you mentioned how being so constrained took a toll on your mental health. Like I, I completely mm -hmm. relate to that. And I understand how difficult it can be to like not completely cut the emotional ties that you have with your family, but to do what is good and best for you. But at the same time, being respectful to your parents. I think that's also very like part of Latin Absolutely. American culture. You know, it's still, mm -hmm. you still, even though you want to live your life your own way and you want to live it, you know, make it, a happy life you still want your parents mm -hmm. to be proud of you you still want them to be happy for you, you still yeah. want them to be part of your life and if they're like right. big influence on you uh and they are pulling you towards a completely different path it's so hard and i mean yeah I, I i can relate to that in a way um but you know it's funny because you're talking about having that double life so you actually like took yourself out of that environment and you know your mental health you, you went through your you know mental health journey and then you said mm -hmm. I'm gonna do whatever makes me happy but then you went back into the whole that inner fight I guess you know mm -hmm. emotionally it must have been really yeah. hard yeah honestly it's um it was it was and it the funny thing is it manifests in different ways depending on what stage of life you're in because I would even say I still in a way have to do that with my family to a degree, especially being a child-free woman now, right? So um, I, I'm able to do it with more, <laughs> I was going to say more grace, but it's not always that way. <laughs> I try to do it with more grace yeah. until I can't and like I break down and then my husband has to like um, hold some space for me. But um, anyways, going back to the, your initial question though, yeah, I was very much needing to that was the first time in my life figuring out how to do that. So it was, it was messy, you know, figuring out what parts of me can I show to my family. I love, love my family dearly um, and respect them and just want to enjoy them. For, I, there's, you know, life is fleeting. I've had too many people in my life. Um, 
get their life cut short in various different ways that I just very much am aware that how fleeting life can be. So I want to enjoy the people I have in my life as much as I can. So just figuring out boundaries and knowing what parts of myself can I bring into my family so that I can love them and embrace them. Um, I don't, the unfortunate thing is that I don't think they're able to love and embrace me fully because I can't show them all parts of myself, but that's fine. I mean, it's good enough. You know, it's good enough. Like I, you know, I'd love to be able to have my cake and eat it too, but in certain things I can just accept that good enough is good enough. You know, with my family, I'm able to do that. At least I know that they feel very loved by me, which is good. And then I know with the wonderful thing with me marrying outside of my culture and it's part of it is my husband's nature. Part of it is um, being outside of my, being with someone outside of my culture has allowed me a lot of freedom to be myself fully unrestricted. And um, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, when I see my husband do that for himself, cause I think the way he was raised, he, he lived a very unrestricted life. Like he could, he, he could do whatever he want, wanted. And like he had full freedom. He, in, in a lot of respects, our families are on opposite opposite sides of the spectrum his family is very like free-flowing and like very embracing and um not controlling not controlling at all whereas my family but it's I see my family but really it's the culture like Indian culture is just very controlling very restrictive um there's only a handful of ways that you're allowed to live that are considered respectable and if you're living outside of those uh ways um you're basically um just, yeah, ba people think that you're not living a good life. You're suffering if you live outside of those other options. So um, in a lot of ways, seeing him live his life freely has shown me how to do that for myself. Um, and because he lives that way for himself, he's able to allow that for me. You know, like he doesn't, he's not a controlling person because he values his freedom for himself. Therefore, he nurtures that in me too. And I very much value my freedom. So I'm, it's like that. That is only growing more and more. So we live, we live with a lot of freedom in our lives and we enjoy it thoroughly. And I get to share that joy with my husband and talk about it and kind of live in that world fully, which I feel is my real world. Um, and then when we're with my family, we bring what we can and share the joys that we can. But it is a much more limited, much more limited. We've learned where those boundaries are. My husband's a lot more clear about where those boundaries are. I'm still learning. Honestly, I'm still learning. I still make mistakes with it and um, say things that I regret saying that I should have like bit my tongue on. <laughs> um, so it's still a, le a learning curve, but I'm a lot, I've strengthened that muscle of like boundaries and um, I've strengthened that much more since I was in my early twenties. So. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, when you, when you grow up and if you, if you actually do that consciously, it gets a lot easier as you get older. Mm -hmm. But now that you right. mentioned that the fact that you guys are actually child free, because we were, I was just going to ask you about that. So mm. on top of you marrying outside of your culture, you're child free. And I want to yeah. know how that journey was for you. How did you make the decision and also, you know, how your family has reacted to it? If they know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate how you asked that. Um, the yeah the journey sorry i can be kind of long-winded so i apologize if i'm taking a long time to explain um things um it was a journey i was never i didn't i definitely didn't anticipate like when i was 18 if you had asked me if you had told me like okay monique you're gonna be marrying outside of your culture not only that it's not gonna be to a white guy you're gonna be marrying a mexican guy <laughs> like with his own culture um 
you're going to end up choosing not to have kids. Like I would have been like, who, what? I don't know who you're talking about. Like I just, (laughs) there's no, um, so in a lot of ways it wasn't, uh, anyways, all that to say, I was always neutral. I always assumed I would have kids at some point. I, I had told my husband when we were dating, we both were neutral. Like it came up at some point. And I remember him just saying like, I mean, I'm neutral. I don't have a strong feeling either way. And he was the same way. Um, I'm one of, I'm a child free person, but I love the kids in my life. Like I'm obsessed with my nieces and nephews. I love them dearly. And so, um, the good thing is I was able to see the reality of things. I think before, um, my siblings had kids, I had a romanticized version of what parenthood would be like, what life with a child is like, which I think a lot of us women and men, uh, experience like this romanticized commercial version of it. Um, I got to see the reality of it, the reality of what the sleepless nights look like, the reality of, I'm a very empathetic person. I mean, I'm like, I'm a counselor by trade, like that's my profession. And so I, part of it is by my nature, I just feel other people's emotions and I could feel my siblings emotions of like this life transition they were making, being fully responsible for this other being. Um, And it being a nonstop 24 hour, like all every minute of your life. Right. Um, so I got a, a clear dose of that, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> um, I helped a lot with, with their kids too. Um, and so, you know, firsthand experience, but I could always hand it back to their parents, you know? Um, yeah. so, so I, I got, I got a, a, a taste of that. Um, and then also there's, the, there's some other things that happened too. Like I was reading at the time I had always in my head in my head that, okay, well, because I was neutral, I was always putting off having a kid. So I was like, okay, well, when I'm 34, I feel like that's kind of the age where it's like, you really need to choose either way. Because at that point, it's a risk to you. It's there's more like risk to the baby, all of that. So um, then I turned 34 and still (laughs) didn't have a kid, but was mentally preparing myself. Um, And I was reading articles. Um, from different forums, like motherhood forums. And I came across this article. Well, when I noticed that my anxiety was increasing, like the more articles I read on like how to sleep train a newborn, how to breastfeed a newborn, what life is like with a newborn, um, even a few years into like what life is like with a toddler, what life is like with a five-year-old, all those, I was reading like forums. I wasn't reading like um, I, I, I dove deep. <laughs> so I get, yeah, like, you went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I went down that rabbit hole. Totally. Totally. Unintentionally went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> and, um, it's crazy because that was like, that was, yeah. The more I read, I noticed the more anxious I was feeling like my anxiety was getting higher and higher and higher, which that's, a, that's a sign. Like it's, going down a path that's increasing your anxiety and the, there's no like reward to balance out that anxiety like it's good to step back and just reassess. Right. Um, and then I came across an article, um, about, uh, it was a, a husband who had been writing about his wife who had passed away. She actually had postpartum depression and committed suicide. And, um, this, I mean, these are heavy things. I'm, I, I, but it's, there's something to it that spoke very much to me. Um, because, I felt given my background, you know, I, given my history of depression and my history of suicidality, I was actively suicidal in my early twenties. Um, I knew that if I was doing anything in my life, that wasn't a hundred percent hell yes, that I don't feel my life would have been endurable. I knew that the depression, you know, the depression that I was feeling was not a hormonal imbalance depression. It was due to circumstances. It was due to me not living 
true to my soul, my gut, you know, just that's what caused my depression. And so it, it struck a chord with me. And I felt like I could be that woman. Like I never had a desire to have a kid that strongly that the sacrifices that are required would feel worth it. There's other things in my life I've done that had a lot of pain and sacrifice, marrying outside of my culture, like fighting for my relationship. It was incredibly painful and required a lot of, even to this day, requires sacrifice actually. But the joy of that relationship, the joy that I feel to be me and to grow in that part of my life is far greater than the pain that I've had to endure. And I couldn't say that with becoming a mother or doing that parenthood life. I couldn't say that there was enough reward there or any for that matter, because I had always felt neutral. So I remember um, mentioning that to my husband. Well, I was, I was like sobbing. <laughs> I had kind of a, a, wow. a breakdown, like caused like a breakdown. And yeah really triggered a lot of emotions in me to really face my face, the facts, face my truth, face something that I didn't realize I was going to need to face. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was good. It, I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, um, my life has expanded after I've broken, you know, you break and then you're no longer restricted by the shell that you were in that shell's broken now. And now you can expand into this other form of you. And so it was very much a breaking for me. Um, and it started the conversation with me and my husband about, about this. And then I started reading like child-free articles. At the time, I, this was when I was 34. At the time, I didn't even know of the word child-free. So I wouldn't even, the, actually the term child-free has just come to me this year. This is two years later. So before that, I was, oh, what, I know what it was. I was reading parenthood regret articles. Um, and so that's kind of the other rabbit hole that I went down. Mm-hmm. And the more I read that, the more liberated I felt. My anxiety totally calmed and I felt liberated. I felt liberated in um, there being a space created to opt out of parenthood um, by reading these parenthood regret testimonials and hearing parents actually say like, don't do this unless you are like, unless you have a heartfelt desire to have a kid, you know, like it was, it almost gave me permission to explore this side of myself that I didn't even know existed. And, um, yeah, just so the more I talked with my husband about it, thankfully, he's, he's kind of been on the page of like, well, let's just decide so that we know kind of what the trajectory of things is. Honestly, for him, he felt like he wanted to wait until we had a kid until we were like financially able to really provide for our kid. And we weren't out of place at that time. Um, and so and then I remember there was another point too where he was wondering, like, you know, what if we regret not having a kid, which is a valid concern. And it was something I yeah. thought of too. And um, I came across this article of a, of a woman who specifically wrote about that. And um, there's a part of the article where she wrote that, you know, she came to her choice because she just realized that, you know, both options are going to have regret. It's just which one of those regrets is she going to be able to live with? And I thought for myself, like, sure, I'm going to have times where I regret ha- regret not having a kid. I'm, if I had a kid, I'd also have times where I'd regret having a kid. And I think knowing of what I know of myself, knowing my history, knowing my nature, knowing what I value in my life, I felt that to have a kid and then regret having that kid, this human that's now here that is permanent, that you can't undo, this is your life now. Um, not only regret having the kid, but regret what that life of parenthood means for you, the everyday experience of what your life is. I couldn't live with that regret um, is what I felt. And I felt like if I don't have a kid and have regrets of not having a kid, 
I could at least live with that. At least not every moment of my life is going to feel like misery to me. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and now like, you know, this is two years later. So I'm 36 now. I would tell my 34 year old self, like, girl, you're not going to regret a single minute. Like I haven't, I haven't even experienced <laughs> yeah. that. If anything, there's been like relief. My relief yeah. has only grown as the years have gone by. So yeah, that's the yeah. long story. <laughs> I completely, but you know, it's funny. I completely understand that feeling. It was the same for me in the sense that when I realized I, that childfree was a choice because I didn't even know that there was a choice. Like I always mm-hmm. thought I was going to have kids, kids yeah. as well. Right. When I realized that it was like a big weight just got lifted off my chest. I was like, really? I yeah. can do that? I can not have kids? Oh my God. Like I'm, I'm really going to go, yes. you know, so mm-hmm. it is liberating. And, and, you know, to the comment that you made about regret, first of all, I completely agree with you um, on, on your, mm-hmm. on your thoughts about it. But you made me think also, um, so Kristen Tetsi, she's one of the Child Free Girls co-hosts. She mm. said several times, you cannot regret something that you don't do. You know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. another way of looking at it. Because it's true. It's like, you didn't do it. You don't really know if you would have enjoyed it or not, or yeah. if it was for you or not. So I think yeah. that word for, for that is a little bit, is a little bit, I don't think regret would be the word for somebody who's child-free. But Mm -hmm. in the end, I mean, and I've read a couple of stories of people who decide, you know, they're child-free. And then at some point they decide, you know what, I really want a kid. And and they can still Mm -hmm. do it. I mean, you can still adopt, you can foster. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways of becoming like a a parent. Um, Whereas like you you have a kid and then you're like, oh my God, I don't want this. What are you going to do with a kid? What are you going to do? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. You can't regret something that you didn't do. And maybe that's why I don't feel regret. I mean, maybe because you know, when that's interesting, because before I had made the choice, when I was like, if this, when I was on the other side of the fence, doing all of that, going down those rabbit holes, and um, like checking in with myself to see what felt more liberating. I hadn't jumped on the other side of the fence yet. So the idea of there being regret both ways was definitely felt like a, a reality that I would need to face. Um, and the interesting thing is it's almost like once you're, I, I saw this quote once that basically said like, once you're willing to face the thing that you fear, a lot of the times you don't even need to battle it. It kind of just dissipates on its own just by your willingness to face it. And I would say that very much was the case here because now standing on the other side of the fence I agree with you. Regret is not a word that I would put in the reality of what I'm experiencing in my day-to-day life. I don't feel any regret for it. It feels incredibly liberating. And I've been seeing all these um, memes on Instagram, especially with this pandemic and all of us being at home, like, uh, you know, at least I don't have a kid. Like there's so much going on in the world, but it's a relief that I don't have like a kid that I'm also having to take care of day in and day out amongst all the chaos. Right. Mm. Absolutely. So, um, if anything, it feels like a relief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I resonate with that. Regret's not the right word. Yeah. Yeah. On the other, when you're standing on the other side of the fence. Yeah. yeah I completely agree with that. But also, mm-hmm. I mean, I've met incredible child for women who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, you know what? I mean, I have not regret a single second of it. I've had a fucking mm-hmm. life because that's the life that I chose exactly and it's just so empowering to hear this women you know yeah especially because they come from like different like 
the past generations, like older generations who are like a lot mm-hmm. more traditional in that sense. So Absolutely. Absolutely. That is incredibly empowering. And I think for us, we don't have a lot of examples of that, you know, very, very few, given how many examples you have of women who are grandmothers at that age. So it's very empowering and oxygen giving to hear women in their 60s, 70s, 80s saying that to us. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Well, this has been so interesting. And thank you so much again for your time. Uh, yeah, it went by so fast. <laughs> I know, and it's a yeah. short amount of time, but um, you know, you're always welcome to come back if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I let you go, Monique, is there anything that you would like to add to our interview? Something you want my firecrackers to hear you? Hey. I would say just I, at the end of the day, I feel like honoring our truth, checking in with ourselves, and then having the courage to live the life that comes out of that, of checking in with ourselves and doing what feels right every step of the way. I would encourage any woman, any woman to do that. And I think for all women, we all struggle with this to varying degrees. And that's just, that's my whole motto. That's the nature of how I live. That's the nature of of my, my page. My Instagram page is like, do what feels right to you, but you know, quiet the noise of the outside, quiet the influences, do what feels right to you every step of the way and see how your life frees itself by doing that. And I feel like what, what other ways are to live, but a life that is free, right? So yeah, I just encourage, encourage every woman to do that. And I hope to learn how to do that even more for myself. And as I'm experiencing every year of my life, I'm finding more and more freedom and more letting go of things more and living more freely, which is a beautiful thing. So it is absolutely. Could you tell my audience what the handle is on Instagram? Your, for your page. Oh yeah, it's um it's the self care the dot self care dot counselor. Yeah. Okay. I will leave you guys the link in the description of this episode below so you can follow Monique. And thanks again so much for being here. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Honest Uproar, a podcast for modern child free women share their life stories, and where we discuss important topics for the Cape Fear community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.